This is a HeadGum Podcast. So, Andrew. So, Craig. You've probably heard about microdosing. I have. At least once. Okay, good. Now, for any of our listeners, if not, just know that all sorts of people are microdosing daily to feel healthier and perform better. Overdue is sponsored today by Microdose Gummies, which deliver entry-level doses of THC that help you feel the right amount of good. Yep. You're not a macro dose, not a what a nano dose. I guess <laughs> would be smaller micro than microdosing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you can use them to help like get in the zone and focus, or like chill out at night. Uh, they're gluten free, vegan friendly. They've in- been infused with Oregon grown berries. I love berries from Oregon. Um, I like Oregon. I like berries. It sounds like two things that would go really well together. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I know folks who microdose as part of their routine because it helps, you know, chill them out at the end of a long day. If they're, you know, just winding down, getting into bed, they want to read a book, they want to Netflix and chill, all sorts of stuff that you want to do as part of your routine. Uh, But first, think about the fact that microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use code OVERDUE to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Again, that's microdose.com, code OVERDUE. Are you ready to talk about this book? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. I wasn't sure if we were in America yet. I wasn't sure if we were either, but here we are. Here we are. We're back. No, stop it. (laughs) It's been zero episodes since. (laughs) Yep. Change the sign. (laughs) God. uh, Well, we're here. It's every week one of us reads a book that we've never read before and tells you, the listener, about it. Uh huh. And this week it's Craig who read it. Yes. I read uh, Tony Kushner's two part play, uh, Angels in America, a gay fantasia on national themes, uh, both parts Millennium Approaches and Perestroika. You seen Fantasia? Yeah, that one, right? I feel like it's. I feel like it's not not gay. Is what I'm saying. Oh yeah. Like if you're trying to do gay Fantasia, I feel like <laughs> it just be Fantasia. It just be Fantasia. It's a good time. <laughs> yeah, it was a good time. It's not a criticism. It's just an observation about his title. Yeah. Well, maybe that's why you picked it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, there are probably other reasons why he picked it. Um, probably Patreon recommendation, Army. Thank you, Army. No further notes. Uh, there just that's the recommendation Let's play speak for itself yes uh have you ever seen this play andrew i have never because it is well not not because it is seven hours long yeah but i look at that fact about it and it's like well maybe i maybe i'll just read the wikipedia about mm. this one <laughs> i have seen uh a production of perestroika i did not catch the corresponding production of millennium approaches it was done here mm-hmm. in philly Ooh, six years ago time is weird uh se- mm-hmm. several years ago and it was good from what i remember um but no i've n- and i've never read it um 
I've never worked on a part of it, so this was an interesting experience for me to read it just because I like had some familiarity with it. There were scenes I remembered when I got to them in the second play. Um, I like my my most the most I've been exposed to this, and this I might even be making it up oh, based on no. just like looking at the poster. Uh huh. Or the you know for the HBO miniseries okay. from two thousand three. Yeah. I think I remember ads for that. Yeah, yeah. Miniseries. That, I think I may remember gotten. like montage. I've never seen that miniseries, and this makes me think that I should probably go watch it. Um, I spoiler. I had a good time reading this uh, book play. Um, I think I remember clips from the Emmys that year where people mm-hmm. were not like one of those things. Like ah, that yeah. And this is so in 2003, we're we are still in this. It's not TV, it's HBO <laughs> yes, era where true. they're like, No, 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 it's we're not making television. Are you kidding? This is the home box office, Excuse yeah. So it's me. got Al Pacino, Meryl Streep, uh, Mary Louise Parker, Emma Thompson, and other people, yeah. in it. Just like the most. Not just one movie actor who's slumming around doing TV. It's yes. like, how many movie actors can we get in this? Kind of revolutionary. To really let people know that it's not TV, it's yeah. HBO. Yeah. Um, this was broadcast in two, three hour chunks that correspond to each like half of the play. And it was also broadcast in six one hour chapters that correspond roughly to each act of Which is both plays. tricky because act. The the second part is technically five acts, but yeah. Every summary I read was very careful to to note that this was a rough division, okay, and good, not like great. a one to one sort of thing. I, I feel more comfortable being a pedant when we're doing a theater episode. Great, because That's I feel like I can everybody. lean into it as a character. Not that I necessarily like really believe in all of my pedantry, mm-hmm. but it's not an energy I feel comfortable bringing to the show too often. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I can do it here for comedic effect. That's good, and I'm glad that you feel that you can do that. <laughs> yeah. So you gotta give space for people to like explore parts of themselves. Mm-hmm. And this, mm-hmm. I thank you for giving me this space, Andrew. You want to tell me a little bit about Mr. Kushner, um, Tony Kushner? Yeah, the author of this week's book. He was born in 1956. He's an American author and playwright. Sure. Great. Thank you, Siri. <laughs> Uh, he was born in New York City to musicians. Uh, he's the descendant of Jewish immigrants from Russia and Poland. Uh, grew up primarily in Louisiana. Um, and yeah, this is his biggest work. It's interesting. So I'm interested to know which version of it you read, right? Because Millennium Approaches began being performed in 1991. while, And that's the first part of the play. While the second part, Perestroika, was still being written. Uh, Perestroika premiered originally in 1992. The two-part play first debuted on Broadway in 93. Um, the first version of the work was, quote, like completed in 1995, but then Kushner made more revisions in 2010 for a production in San Francisco, and then those changes were incorporated into a complete edition in 2013. And this is all like part of Kushner's thing, where he like takes a long time to finish stuff and is has been known to go back and revise stuff pretty extensively even after it's quote finished or it's like appeared in public for the first time so i assume you got the complete edition i didn't see anything about changes that have been made to the text since then but yeah so i'll just read the 
some of the final paragraphs of the introduction to this edition, and you can you can infer when it when it was written, Andrew. Okay. Okay. Sure. Angels in America. Uh, survives as do I. I'm utterly and happily in the dark about the longevity of my work, but I hope Angels outlasts me. I hope it will continue to be entertaining and of interest and use to people for years to come. I hope there'll be people for years to come. I'm writing this introduction the day before America goes to the polls to vote for Mitt Romney or Barack Obama for president. This is the place from which it seems to me I've always written, perched on the knife's edge of terror and hope. It's familiar enough, though today the edge is sharper than it's ever been, and the two worlds it divides, one of light, one of darkness, seem respectively more brilliant and more abysmal more extremely opposed than ever before whatever tomorrow brings asterisk the future i'm reasonably certain of this remains indeterminate and the asterisk at the bottom says it turned out okay parentheses tony kushner november 2013 it's i i mean i remember oh i remember that too feeling high stakes at the time yeah i think i was but i I think i watched those returns when i was working late night at macy's that was wild nearly a decade later yeah it does feel a little quaint to think about to think about being that scared of Mitt Romney Mm -hmm. (laughs) who's he's he's had his like like disappointing redemption arc already currently the the best elected Republican who exists and I'm sure Tony probably feels similar about it like this was written back then it's this is a time time is weren't we just talking about time's funny time's funny it is funny Um, Um, more more stuff about uh, Kushner's yeah politics he's been a critic of of israel in a way that has occasionally gotten him uh guff namely israel's treatment of uh, palestinian people yep um he wrote a six-word memoir that was published in 2010 as part of a collection of these his memoir was at least i never voted republican (laughs) so there's that okay and uh, he's married to Mark Harris, who's a journalist and author. In 2003, their uh, commitment ceremony was the first one to be featured in the Vows column of the New York Times. Huh, okay. And then they were legally married in 2008 in Massachusetts. If you, For those of you without uh, memories that go back that far, <laughs> that's back when I guess we were just legalizing pre- it state by state. Yeah, it was pre right? you just had right? to kind of go wherever you had. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. It was a cool time. It was a cool time. Um, so, yeah, Kushner's biggest thing is Angels America. It's, he, starting in 2003, when he wrote the screenplay for the HBO miniseries for this, he started doing more screenwriting. Um, loves a prestige sort of project, this guy. So he wrote Munich, which was directed by Spielberg in 2005. Um, he adapted a Lincoln biography into the movie Lincoln. And they also worked on that West Side Story adaptation, also for Spielberg. Yes, I'm from yeah, and that that had some interesting. Imagine, I like that I movie. Like, I like that. There's just a Kushner to Spielberg pipeline that he could he could kind of do whatever he wants, and Steven Spielberg then has to adapt it for the screen. It's funny. I actually don't know. I if anybody knows a little bit more about their relationship, I didn't dive into it. There is a funny line towards the end of part one. Where like the lighting in the in the <laughs> this is I guess you know this is written in ninety one pre Schindler's List actually um, so I don't know what Spielberg would have just worked on um, but like the lighting gets all like 
moody and interesting and the main character prior just goes it's very spielberg in here and well, i mean this is the version of the play that was a was oh, changed may- like three times well <laughs> so yeah maybe he added that in hmm i don't yeah. know <laughs> i don't know the older mentioned version. his cool friend steven spielberg what was that textbook that you had in college oh my god that, that econ just, textbook yeah you had an econ <laughs> <laughs> A textbook for econ class that just every single time it had to do like a practical example it was always just like this, this is about steven spielberg and then i'm gonna you, teach you about uh, economics through the lens of steven spielberg yeah, and you'd look in the back and like the work cited were a bunch of like you know research papers and then a biography of steven spielberg <laughs> what a weird book that was other i'm familiar with other works of of his the the musical carolina change is pretty cool um, I know about his translation of Mother Courage and her children. I w- almost worked on a production of Homebody Kabul. He also did. He did. This is another another entry in Tony Kushner takes forever to write stuff. Oh yeah, <laughs> a 2009 play called The Intelligent Homosexual's Guide to Capitalism and Socialism with a Key to the Scriptures, which was, he was writing for like a decade before it came out. Oh sure, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, when you're busy writing, when you're busy rewriting your most successful thing, right. yeah, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> um, uh, Angels has been lauded multiple. Well, so both Angels and Kushner have been lauded multiple times. In 2013, he was given a National Medal of Arts by his favorite president, Barack Obama. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then uh, Angels in America received a Pulitzer Prize for drama. It received the Tony Award for best play. Um, in 2017, it was revived on the West End. That production later moved to Broadway, but it won a Laurence Olivier Award for best revival in 2018. Did you see who's in this um, cast for that production? I know. I wanted to talk about it. So this this production received 11 Tony nominations and then won three. There are a lot of people in the in the revival. Andrew Garfield is one, but the one I the one I really really want to see is Nathan Lane as Roy Cohn. Nathan Lane as Roy Cohn. <laughs> that made me really happy to see that Nathan Lane was doing that. Oh my god! As a fan, like I just I watch a lot of TV shows where Nathan Lane just kind of shows up as a character actor for a couple of episodes, and I, I him and Stephen Root. Like as soon as they yeah. walk on state on screen in anything, I'm like, oh, so this is good, right? Well, but here's the thing: I feel like <laughs> Stephen Root uh, inhabits unique characters better than Nathan Lane does. Mm-hmm. Nathan, Nathan Lane, Lane is always just like Nathan. Here, I'm Nathan Lane. I've talked about this before. I saw the Godot that Nathan Lane was in, and mm-hmm. like Pazzo was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vladimir was there. Lucky was there, and Nathan Lane and was Nathan there. <laughs> <laughs> Godot showed up and was like, "Who's this guy? It's Nathan Lane." Um, he's good. I mean, he's a great performer. He's a very he talented in, performer, indelibly Nathan Lane. If he ever wanted to come Stephen on, Stephen Root is yeah. always like, "Oh, who's this weird pervert?" Oh <laughs> he's so talented. That's Stephen Root. Um, we can we can probably save explaining why it's funny that Nathan Lane played Roy Cohn until we get into the play. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, let's take a break while we think about that for uh, another second. And then I'll tell you about this play. Sounds great. Help me. I will do my best with a word from our sponsor, better help. Life could be a oh, lot. <laughs> Andrew, you ever get burned out? 
Yes. What burns you out? Recording too many podcasts in too short a time. When we try try to do too much in too little time, you get burned Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. Um, And you listening at home, you might be like kind of worn out. You might be fatigued. And you might think that there's just like one simple root cause, like too many podcasts. But for some folks, it's bigger than that. Uh, And BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself and talking with someone not necessarily on a podcast, can help figure out what's causing you stress or contributing to burnout. Yeah, um, that's our thing. That's our thing, yeah. You can't take our thing. <laughs> Don't take it away from us. A lot of people uh, in my life, um, I think people in your life too, Andrew, have sought mm-hmm. therapy and found it very helpful. Um, yeah. And folks I know who've used BetterHelp have found it helpful and convenient. Uh, it's customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash overdue. That's betterhelp.com slash overdue. Andrew, Greg, I would like to start, I think, by going through the dramatis personae. We did this okay. the last time we did a play, I think when I did some Shakespeare, and I felt it was a good way to get like kind of an overview of the play, even just by being like, here's all the people in it. You know, I sort of wonder if that's why they published those at the beginning of plays. Maybe. <laughs> There's some plays where they're where they don't tell you everybody that's in it. Mm-hmm. There's a play called uh, "The Woman in Black," which I think I may have talked about for our podcast. It's hard to remember. It's, it's hard so to know, long. but they it's don't they so don't tell you in the cast list that she's is, is that play. like when they have a really amazing guest star on a TV show and they don't put their name in the the credits in the credits so that you don't know it's coming. Yeah, yeah, like it's when like um, was that Matt Damon who's in Eurotrip? Sure, that's right. <laughs> Isn't he playing the song at the concert? Yeah, yeah, that's him. He's not in the credits. Anyway, let's read the characters for <laughs> oh, Millennium Lord. Approaches. Uh, Roy Cohn, a, su- a successful New York lawyer and unofficial power broker. Real life man, Roy Cohn. There's an asterisk. It says the character Roy Cohn is based on the late Roy Cohn, who, w- who was all too real. For the most part, the acts attributed to the character Roy, such as his illegal conferences with Judge Kaufman during the trial of Ethel Rosenberg, are to be found in the historical record. But this Roy is a work of dramatic fiction. His words are my invention and liberties have been taken. That is the like when you post your YouTube video with copyrighted music and you put put no copyright infringement intended on the bottom of it. Like that's basically what you do. This is royalty free Roy Cohn. Mm -hmm. Um. That's what Roy is short for. It's <laughs> royalty free. Uh, there is Joseph Porter Pitt, a chief clerk for Justice Theodore Wilson. Of Are the- any of these other people real? Or no. is it just Roy Cohn? Who's uh, okay. Well, um, well, I mean, again, Roy Cohn's not real. He's a fictional person based on the real Roy Cohn. Uh, so the, the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg does show up. Okay. So she was real. She was real. And I think that's it. Unless any, unless the angel is real, but I'm pretty sure that the angel is a creation by Tony Kushner. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, Joseph Pitt, uh, he's a clerk for a justice on a federal court of appeals. 
There is Harper Pitt, uh, Joe's wife, an agoraphobic with a mild Valium addiction. There's Lewis Ironson. He is a word processor. I guess that's a typist or like a secretary. Like he's not a he's not Microsoft Word. Mm-hmm. He is a processor of words. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Uh, he also works for the Second Court of Appeals. There's Prior Walter, who is Lewis's boyfriend. Um, he is our main character. It says here he occasionally <laughs> works as a club designer or caterer, otherwise lives very modestly, but with great style off a small trust fund. That does not really factor into the play. Much. It'd be funny if like you were da- you're dating someone named walter after you had dated prior walter and okay. create a lot of confusion about like when you're telling relationship stories there's like, which walter are you, t- you talking about the current walter or the prior walter? there's a lot of there's a bunch of jokes about that he's Ooh. he comes from a long line of of prior walters Ooh, good um they're so glad hannah pitt who is joe's mother who currently lives in salt lake city uh, at the beginning of the play though she comes to new york at the end of this play and at or when I say um excuse me I should be careful with my nomenclature I think about this as two separate plays because it is often produced in like two separate chunks well cuz nobody's going to come and sit for 7 hours it, of a play like listen, I don't even like to, I don't even like to go for, to a movie that's 2 hours and they 40 do, minutes long like I'm not <laughs> they do do it uh, I think when the Wilma did it here in Philly they they ran uh, they ran one of them for a few weeks, then they ran the other one for a few weeks, and then there were some days where they performed both of them. Sure. Um, but like Kushner knows that it is a work of endurance. Like that's the mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Um, there is Belize, who is a registered nurse and former drag queen, um, whose name was originally Norman Ariaga. Uh, Belize is a drag name that stuck. Um, the angel. Here you go, Andrew. Four divine emanations, fluor, phosphor, lumen, and candle manifest in one, the continental principality of America. She has magnificent steel gray wings. Ask me whatever it, questions you want about the angel. It's like a megazord angel. It's like four angels who come together to form one angel. No, I think you don't really get the four in one thing, really. Um, in my experience, it's supposed to just be like a big, imposing. It's not supposed to look like a cute angel. It's not supposed to look like a. It's not like a little naked baby. Not a little naked baby. It's not <laughs> like a fun time. Like, hark the herald angels sing. Angel. Yeah, those angels. Those <laughs> angels know how to party in that song. This is meant to be. Uh, a very imposing figure and as as kushner says in his notes at the end of this edition it is not supposed to be human they they are supposed to be of a it's distinct- not a blonde white guy in a, in a white robe no 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 okay um there is a rab- rabbi shemelwitz shemelwitz who we meet briefly an orthodox jewish rabbi um, also played by the actor playing Hannah. A bunch of these roles are supposed to get doubled in a cast of eight. I won't go through all of those as well. Um, there is Mr. Lies. Sounds like a bad dude. <laughs> Harper. We, already, we, already t- we already talked about Roy Cohn. <laughs> ah, Harper's imaginary friend, a travel agent um, who always wears a lapel that says the International Order of Travel Agents or IOTA. Um, in style of dress and speech, he suggests a jazz musician, it says. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 
there's a man in the park. There's a voice. There is uh, Henry and Emily, who is a doctor and a nurse. There's a guy in the Reagan administration named Martin Heller. Uh, there is a real estate agent from Salt Lake City named Sister Ella Chapter. There's two. There's two ghosts of prior Walters or of Priors Walters. Prior, prior, prior Walters. Priors, older, older prior Walters. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. um, they they are from older centuries in America. The Walter family is supposed to have, you know, been around for a good long time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's an Eskimo. I think that's just supposed to be a hallucination, um, because when Harper believes that she's in Antarctica, I think she's just like in Brooklyn. Um, there is another woman on the street and then there's ethel rosenberg um and then in part two perestroika it's a lot of the same people we meet some more angels and then i think there might be some more like random people on the street but there's no Mm -hmm. other like major characters that we haven't already met before Mm -hmm. in fact Mm -hmm. i think it's even a little simpler than the first one well I mean, when the six angels of all the other continents show up, is that simpler? I don't know, but uh, that's any questions off the bat as I give you that list of people? No, I was kind of asking questions and making funny little comments as we went, so I feel like I'm feel like I'm good. Is there anybody you want to dive into more, or should we just like get into the play? The <clears throat> hmm, where should we start? We start with Pryor. Um, he and his partner, Prior Walter, Prior Walter, um, he and his partner Lewis are together and Prior discovers, uh, at the beginning of the play that he has AIDS or he has tested positive for HIV. And then I Mm -hmm. think he is transitioning into, you know, he's developing AIDS. Yes. Um, and Lewis's partner like can't deal with it. And, most of their arc in the first part in Millennium Approaches is this like Lewis looks at this happening and just completely bounces and like cannot and leaves prior on his own to deal now with you it. You mentioned that there's a Reagan administration person on that list of characters. Does that, is that, do we take that to mean that the Reagan administration is, is currently the administration? I'm just trying to place oh, this in yes. time. Oh, yes. I should have said this takes place in 1986. Okay. Um, so still well, 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 well within HIV as a death sentence for pretty much everybody who gets it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the government is not doing anything about it. Kind of stuff. And it may, in fact, be doing the reverse of anything yeah, about it. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And you know, this play was written in uh, what did Kushner say? He said something. He was he was writing it in eighty seven. Um, yeah, if it was if it was being performed in ninety one, and we're talking about our boy Tony Kushner, he was probably writing it at least a few years before. Uh, it started going on. What yeah. did he say? The AIDS epidemic was in its sixth year. The Reagan administration in its seventh. It was a terrifying and galvanizing time. He was, I think, in his 30s. He was 31 years old. So, yeah, he's looking at, uh, you know, his community and his generation just being wiped out, uh, let alone people of all different generations being affected by this disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Prior, you know, turns to his friend Belize, but, you know, the first half of of the play for them, uh, for Prior and Lewis, is just like, 
a very, you know, honest, emotional depiction of, hey, I have the problem that is afflicting people right now. And Lewis says, nope, can't. And -hmm. it's very frustrating and it's sad and things like that. Um, the other arc that starts at the beginning of the play is this guy Joe, the Mormon Republican law clerk, uh, and t- totally not real person Roy Cohn, um, who has offered Joe a job in D.C. I think it's supposed to be like in the Reagan administration. I don't remember if it's supposed to be a Supreme Court clerkship or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a lot of like Roy, Roy Cohn being like, you're going to be on the inside, you know, we're conservatism's ascendant. Like this is the wave of the future. You know, you got to get in with the power that's building kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And Joe's wife, Harper, who I mentioned is struggling with some substance abuse and never really leaves the house. Their marriage kind of sucks. And he, goes on long walks at night and she doesn't know where he goes and they are not very intimate Mm -hmm. and he doesn't necessarily know if he wants to leave because he knows that she won't want to go. He ends up meeting Lewis who also works at the, at that second court, the federal court and lo and behold, they develop a relationship. Joe and Lewis do. Okay. Uh, because Joe is closeted and has not really dealt with that with anyone, including himself. And Lewis is running from his real relationship into the arms of someone who is different and not mm. struggling and with illness. Potentially less like complicated. Yeah. Well, he yeah. does learn later that he is now like sleeping with uh, a Mormon Republican who wrote some pretty heinous homophobic case law. Yeah, uh, sure. And sure, that comes sure. up in the second part. But mm-hmm. for a period of time there, like that seemed and like they them being together kind of straddles both parts of Angels in America because like, you know, it has to take shape in the first one that has to fall apart in the second one. Mm-hmm. Um and then the Roy Cohn arc is uh Roy Cohn's dying of AIDS. He contracted AIDS, and he. So this happened. This happened to real life Roy Cohn. It did. It we, did. We've been, we've been dancing around Roy Cohn. Let me just run down. So they're not the same person, but this is some stuff about real life Roy Cohn. Real life who, Roy Cohn. This guy in the play is based on. He's born in 1927, died in 1986. Known best for being a bad politics guy. Uh, so chief counsel for Joseph McCarthy during McCarthyism. Maybe you've heard of that. Oh no. <laughs> Uh, an early lawyer and mentor of Donald Trump's represented Rupert Murdoch was the prosecutor of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg uh, was an informal advisor to presidents Nixon and Reagan, and then uh, was disbarred in 1986 for unethical conduct. Uh, he died of AIDS related complications in 1986 uh, while denying that he was suffering from AIDS related complications. Yes. So I can't imagine what he's doing in this play. <laughs> Yeah. Um if if you I if there was just a there was a moment in the Trump administration where he's talking about how he wants the attorney general general to protect him from prosecution prosecution yeah. for his alleged crimes 
and he asks somebody, where's my Roy Cohn? He was asking for a guy who is pretty well remembered for being like a slimy fixer for conservative politicians. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this play kind of treats him like the devil. I, it's, I think it's interesting that he is... Uh, Given that forward, I'm not... Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's interesting that he's the only real character. I think if, you know, he enters this play probably as you as you said like because he died of aids and that's you know the forefront of what this play is dealing with um and having this you know really heinous person who dies of this illness and like how do we which at the the time would have been coded as almost exclusively homosexual and and the way it's weathered fairly or not yeah whether it's treated in and and how it's depicted in this play is that um roy Cohn is sleeping with lots of men and is just not talking about it to anyone and it's Mm -hmm. multiple characters refer to it as like kind of the best kept secret or like not the best kept the worst kept secret is what i meant that's the idiom excuse me um (laughs) and that it's not surprising that this happened to him um, given how you know many partners he was having and probably not protecting himself and you know how well the disease was known whatever um, and his doctor like gets him admitted and they say that it's liver cancer and then in part two uh, where he is in the hospital for the almost the entire play I think um, and he's being treated by Belize and they have a lot of scenes that are mostly them just like arguing with the other person because Roy Cohn is very comfortable being a racist and mm-hmm. he's just like pushing Belize all the time to get a rise out of him. Uh, there's like, how does Roy, Roy Cohn get treatment and Belize shares with him? Like, don't let them actually treat you for liver cancer. Cause your body can't take it. You, it will kill you even faster. Right. Um, and the, the end of the Roy Cohn thing is really, fascinating because the play does force some characters to like i don't know you don't you don't forgive him but when he dies they do say the kaddish over him and the ghost of ethel rosenberg who's been taunting him the entire play (laughs) has to guide lewis who's like kind of a lapsed he's not a practicing jew um like through saying the kaddish over Mm -hmm. cone Mm mm-hmm and it's this moment, I think, of Kushner kind of being like, well, what is healing from this disease look like? What is the worst person that I can imagine needing some sort of forgiveness or absolution in response to this tragedy kind of thing? Yeah, sure. Which mm-hmm. is funny, though, because Roy Cohn does... Uh, is a jerk when he dies at the same time <laughs> he tricks he's like and this is i'm skipping to the end of the play here it's not a surprise that roy Cohn dies um he like starts just having, like the just like the guy that he's based on yeah he does just Whoa, like the guy okay i think the, mm-hmm. the there's a fudging of the timeline there apparently what he died in real life a few weeks after the disbarment um the disbarment is referenced in this play yeah i don't think they would have disbarred him after he died because it's just not uh <laughs> no not a going concern uh in the play the hearing is happening while he's in the hospital and 
Ethel Rosenberg's ghost is going and sitting in on the hearing and then telling him how bad it's going. Mm -hmm. And so she delivers the news that he's been disbarred to him. Um, And then he kind of fakes dying. Like he like, you know, basically starts fake hallucinating and tricks the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg into singing him like a, a lullaby. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, ha ha, I'm not dead. I made you forgive me. And then he dies for real. <laughs> okay. Um, so those scenes are very entertaining. He's just like, I remember from the production I saw, I know the actor who who performed the role, and it's like really something else. I mean, the joking aside about how bizarre it must be to watch Nathan Lane do this, like it is a powerhouse mm-hmm. role. He has a lot to do. He's this larger than life character. Mm-hmm. Um and Kushner gives him lots of, you know, funny stuff to say, even when he's being terrible. So um, the other like, I guess the the other big through line of the play, there's lots of little like character beats and and a couple of the things weave between them. Like Joe has a whole arc, but uh, prior midway through the first part starts hearing voices that are calling him a prophet and that there's work to be done. Mm -hmm. And then the ghosts of his ancestors show up and tell him that an angel is going to come to him and kind of recruit him for some great work. And then at the end of millennium approaches, an angel bursts through his bedroom ceiling and tells him that, uh, he's the prophet and that there's stuff to do. And that's how that play is supposed to end. Kushner has included in some writing after the, after the plays that he understands now that not as many theaters as he thought have space to fly a person in their buildings. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Yeah, um, and he has for like the high school productions of, oh of Angels of God. You need to be yeah. He he does he does say though he's like this. You can't just have it like float on from the side of the state. Like it does have to burst through something. He also like says that he wrote it thinking that the angel would like fly around the stage while it was talking like Spider Man into <laughs> the dark this? style. Yeah, what is this Spider Man? <laughs> in this play about aids in the reagan era (laughs) and he he realizes that he a too many like people would commit to making that happen and it would take up way too much rehearsal time and then Uh they wouldn't be able to actually do his play Mm -hmm. so he's like don't worry about that just kind of make it scary and say the words right and you'll be fine um and he also gives you leeway to like at one point the angel definitely has to like be on stage but not like in the flying rig and mm-hmm. he's like make it part of the play like make the angel command the stage hands like f- figure out a way to make it part of the event um <laughs> he's he kind of fun like that break that fourth wall man yeah you know there's direct address in this play um another thing that's kind of structurally it is not a revolutionary scene structure by any means but i was kind of mm-hmm. struck by his uh notes about it um, he talked. There are a lot of scenes that are explicitly noted to take place in parallel with one another, where you'll have you know two characters in one scene, 
and then two characters in another scene, sort of like a split screen. And they're all just kind of like the scenes are playing out at the same time yes. or is it more of like a you'd have a spot on one and then spot on the other and so just everyone would be on stage at the same he time. explicitly says that he doesn't want you to do the spot on one spot on the other now maybe okay maybe you kind of split the difference and you like maybe dim some lights a little bit but what he doesn't want you to do is like freeze the other scene and cut sure, over okay. um yeah. here's what he he says about that Um, The trick is to work out psychologically coherent, compellingly dramatic reasons why the characters in one event become still and quiet when the action that the audience should be attending to shifts to the other event. When a character chooses to stop talking, to be still and quiet for reasons having to do with the conflict uh, in the scene, an active choice is being made, and hence the character stays alive on stage as opposed to being put in suspended animation by the director. Um, So I I just want to point that out because that's like a thing that... Some playwrights do sort of intuitively and they don't tell you about it. Some playwrights don't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm always interested in stuff like that when I've directed plays. And it's just like, I don't know. I I like that someone who is clearly very talented at this has a way, like just kind of spells it out to you. If you're like, hey, I'm going to go. I think I'm going to do theater. I'm going to pick up this play that's pretty important in, in recent theater history let me read about it and the guy's like here's how you like do a basic thing that is good theater here's good theater do yeah and and also it seems like by by telling you specifically not to do stuff it's like here's the guy who's seen a lot of plays and knows where a lot of directors brains are gonna go and wants to push back against that i also yeah and it's interesting a lot of playwrights will give you they'll give you the germ of the idea because they know that they want their they they get comfortable or they live in the discomfort of like they can't control everything that happens to their productions. Right. Mm -hmm. I do appreciate the power of him being like, it's not this, it's this, like at least drawing a boundary around it is kind of powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of, of split screen stuff. He's also really important. Like, so when Ethel Rosenberg appears on stage, when there's scenes in the first part where Harper, when she is taking a lot of her Valium to deal with absent Joe and whatever she's going to do with her life, um, her and Pryor, who's having his beginning dreams, they see each other and can like talk to each other. There's lots Mm -hmm. of characters kind of like speaking to each other across time and space. And he always writes that uh, they vanish when they leave those scenes. They don't just like walk away. Um, and he's pretty explicit about why that is. He says, mm-hmm. uh, it's easy to stage a person's magical disappearance by simply having the actor exit into the wings, but I don't think that's a strong choice. Not only is it not thoroughly thrilling, fantastical, or amazing, or fun to watch a person walk <laughs> off stage, it's pedestrian, literally and figuratively. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Walking off stage is slow, and therefore it lacks one very important act of vanishing, namely that it's abrupt. In a world in which young people by their thousands sicken and with obscene speed die, vanishing abruptly is particularly upsetting, even frightening. The magic ought to be fun for the audience, but disturbing. For prior, it's increasingly terrifying. Um now, may, do, did he have that thought when he wrote the first draft? I don't know. He's been working on this play for 50 years. Yeah, but, and, he's, and he's seen it put on a bunch of times at this point. But he's got, you know, he's got the ideas. Um, mm-hmm. So in the second part in Perestroika, so Millennium Approaches, you might, 
infer by the title that it is all kind of filled with this anxiety of what's going to happen next now that the world is rapidly changing for all of these characters. Sure, yeah. Um, I don't remember what Perestroika means. I don't think to look it up. But I'm going to look it up I, right now. Perestroika. It's Glasnost and Perestroika. They go hand in hand, and I never know which the one's which. The policy or practice of restructuring or reforming the economic and political system. Okay, sure. Uh, actively promoted by Mikhail Gorbachev. Okay, sure. Tearing down this to wall. Increased auto- automation and labor efficiency, but came to entail greater awareness of economic markets, markets and the ending of central planning. Okay. Oh, so, sure. Capitalism, baby. Maybe. Kind of, baby. <laughs> uh, the opening of the second play is Pryor and Belize attending a friend's funeral, and Pryor, whose disease is progressing at this point, um, telling Belize the story of this angel encounter. It is a mix, it is very erotic. Um, it is at times. Now you've, now you've got my attention. It, it is at times funny. Uh, though Kushner in his notes takes pains to say, like, never let the angel be like a parody because the second that the audience is kind of laughing at how it's being performed, they'll never tune in when it gets serious. Um, mm-hmm. And the angel explains, Andrew, that okay. the angel is recruiting prior as the prophet uh, along with the other six angels, each one for each continent, I guess, that um, God and the angels, well, the angels are all boring because they don't know how to make anything. Sure. They're very powerful, except they can't make anything. God can make stuff. <laughs> Great. Okay. And God created the world by having sex with the angels or something like that. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. I, rem- I it's, It's been a while since I've read Genesis, but I'm pretty sure... <laughs> It's just a, yeah. a, a slam fest every day, and then they all rest. Uh-huh. <laughs> you need it on the Sabbath, and then and uh, it's something that that you know. I think in the scene, it's something that the angels produce. I don't remember exactly how it's described. Again, the fun part of this scene is the meta theatricality of it, where Pryor is like reliving the scene, but also telling Belize what's happening, and Belize is thus in the scene with him, like mm-hmm. seeing the angel which is really fun um it allows for comedy where the angel isn't supposed to be comic which i really like uh but god got bored with these boring angels so god made mankind (laughs) which can create and do their own thing Mm -hmm. but man got so good at like just progress i guess writ large making things changing the world to suit our own whim and whatever Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that kind of messed up heaven um and kind of wrecked heaven for the angels it is described multiple times in the in the play that heaven is uh is a city like san francisco uh hmm, that could mean a lot of it's things. supposed to mean a lot of things <laughs> okay. i think um but the main image of this san francisco is that after the 1906 earthquake uh and the angel implies or, or says that like man's rapid progress somehow caused this devastating earthquake which shook god so much that god abandoned everyone and god's gone now so that's why the okay. 20th century is the way that it is so god yeah invents humanity yeah right yeah and then humanity invents partying mm-hmm. 
and we got too good at partying. It's, we we're, we weren't thinking about whether we were so, <laughs> so concerned with whether we could. We didn't think, think about, whether, about we whether we should. should. Yeah. I think and about that party, every time I'm at party. We partied so good that we ruined heaven for the angels because they're like, well, why can't we party that good? Yes. And then God is like, well, no, I, I got a meeting. I got to go. And then he's just gone. Yes. He is yes? now. Okay. I mean, a cent, sort of. It's hard to tell. He uh, went up to super heaven. It's like, oh, dang, I got to start over. Again. Yeah. He kind of messed it up. And so the angels are mad at humanity. They've not, they've been like spending this whole 20th century uh waiting for god to come back they blame humanity for god staying away uh maybe god's just down on earth and that's what the song what if god was one of us well when was that song recorded andrew can you look it It up like around this around this time right i'm wondering if tony kushner had ever heard that song Uh, so it's in 1990 1995 by joan osborne now you we've talked a lot so about so, the revisions okay. of Angels in America. <laughs> well, and, and you know, God's been gone for a little while. Yeah. And by 1995, I think humans would have just started to sort of ask the questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, what, what happened to him? Well, what if he's one of us? Yes. You know? And mm-hmm. so the... So this has been good. This the, has been a good talk. The angel says... Um, this is what the angel says. Before life on Earth becomes finally merely impossible, it will for a long time before become completely unbearable. You have driven him away. You must stop moving. Forsake the open road. Neither mix nor intermarry. Let deep roots grow. If you do not mingle, you will cease to progress. Seek not to fathom the world and its delicate particle logic. You cannot understand. You can only destroy. You do not advance. You only trample. Poor blind children abandoned on the earth, groping, terrified, misguided over fields of slaughter, over bodies of the slain. Hobble yourselves. There is no Zion save where you are. If you cannot find your heart's desire, uh, you never lost it to begin with. If you cannot find your heart's desire in your own backyard, you never lost it to begin with. Sure. And Belize is like, hey, prior. This story you're telling me about this angel vision you had is really racist. <laughs> and Pryor's like, I, uh, but it happened. And there's this like really powerful tension where Belize is like, okay, my friend is dying from AIDS. I've cared for a lot of people who are dying from AIDS and they go through a lot of weird stuff. But he is saying this to me like it, I don't know what to do. And Belize uh-huh. has to you know, distance himself from prior. And mm-hmm. I, it's, this is one of those plays where there are lots of dreams and visions and fantasies. It's no wonder this got adapted for HBO in 2003. Yow! All right. And it's kind of irrelevant whether or not they are quote unquote real, not to get all heady on you, Andrew, but, the late, I, I suppose. <laughs> the emotional truth. The this happened to this character prior, who is like, you know, wrestling with being abandoned by the love of his life and confronting a world where he has this disease and he doesn't know if he can continue or should continue. So he has been recruited as this prophet and given this kind of really intense anti-migration screed to be the prophet for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ultimately, 
I think through a series of other, you know, he ends up meeting Harper in person while Harper is processing her marriage falling apart. He gets to the bottom of Lewis and Joe and their relationship and his being kind of okay with, not okay, but like, you know, coming to some sort of peace with Lewis. Um, He becomes friends with Joe's mom, Hannah, who has moved to New York and she is Mormon and kind of schools him a little bit on Mormon theology. And so she's Mm -hmm. kind of prepared to deal with these angel visions. Uh, Ultimately, he goes to heaven where the angels are and they're like, so you're going to help us like kind of stop humanity, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And he's like, nah, that's no, I couldn't do that. I can't, (laughs) please, I will not do that. Mm -hmm. Um, What does he say? He says, uh, he's asking them for their blessing. He says, uh, bless me anyway. I want more life. I can't help myself. I do. I've lived through such terrible times, and there are people who live through much, much worse. But you see them living anyway. When they're more spirit than body, more sores than skin, when they're burned in an agony, when flies lay eggs in the corner of the eyes of their children, they live. Death usually has to take life away. I don't know if that's just the animal. I don't know if it's not braver to die, but I recognize the habit, the addiction to being alive. We live past hope. If I can find hope anywhere, that's it. That's the best I can do. It's so much not enough, so inadequate, but bless me anyway. I want more life. Um, and then he closes the play with a with a, a speech to the audience that is kind of using some of that language and then also repurposing the angel saying that there's great work to do and the great work is like mm-hmm. how do we live? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's a very it's prior is this really uh, he, when he leans into his prophet persona he's like dressed all like kind of dark and creepy and he's like trying to figure out how to live with this disease but also he's an angel man now <laughs> uh, and the him emerging as this incredibly hopeful figure in the face of like supernatural pessimism and control is really something sure um, and I, I don't I'm like trying to remember how that read when I saw it and yeah it's really in, it's really intense Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. Well, anything else that you want to hear about? Any other? I don't. I mean, just like how does the? It's such a long play. Like, yeah. especially if it's performed together. I mean, even even if the parts are performed separately, like three plus hours is not a not a short no performance. Like. It's it's so long that it feels like the length of it is a statement in and of itself. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like how does does that read in the in the text at all, or or am I just like obsessed with how hard it would be for me personally to sit through something that was that long? Uh, I think there is. There's a few things working there. One is the the scope of the play is such that once the angels kick in you're like I guess this has to take as much time as it takes like I, <laughs> the the f- millennium approaches feels more it feels tighter mm-hmm. um the it is still a, a long piece of theater but it does feel like it has a cleaner arc um the relationships 
this is all pre-angel stuff, basically. Mm-hmm. The relationships map to other relationships you've seen on stage before. Kushner knows what he's working with. He's got these really strong characters. Belize is really charming. Cone, you love to hate him. That kind of, you know, <laughs> Lewis is a wuss. Joe is kind of figuring himself out in a way where you don't you don't like him at all. And yet his self-discovery is kind of driving parts of the play forward mm-hmm. and Harper is this interesting balance to prior where they both get to experience supernatural stuff uh, but hers is different and and not tied to any of the theological stuff that prior is experiencing so all of that seems to be functioning uh, in like harmony in the first part and then the second part is way shaggier uh, mm-hmm. on purpose I think I didn't find it too long while I was reading it, but I definitely thought it was 40 pages shorter than it was when I got about halfway through. I was like, mm-hmm. I should be done by now. And I flipped ahead. I was like, wow, I have 40 more pages to go. Okay. <laughs> um, and it was that's not a that's not a knock on it. I think the what they're both supposed to be performed with two intermissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Kushner talks about that being very important because the audience actually needs that time to digest and like get caught up on the characters and also to like pee and stuff. Well, and to pee and stuff for sure. (laughs) Um, And to like, you know, go outside and and get a breath of fresh air and stretch their legs. And he says it puts un. if you try to force each play to only have one intermission, you're putting undue pressure on the scenes like prior to those intermissions to get people ready for an intermission like he Mm -hmm. he wrote them with that in the same way that like you know sitcoms are written with the commercial breaks in mind like they're it's not clear on the page that it's like here's an intermission but you can it is very comfortable in the rhythm that it has and if you were to arbitrarily toss some different intermissions in i'm sure it would not feel good Mm -hmm. um but I do think there is something to it being the seven hour play and then the like penultimate, like the climax of the thing is this heaven apocalypse San Francisco where all the other actors are dressed as angels and everyone's speaking in ways you've never heard before. And like you're kind of loopy at that point, uh, <laughs> and you and Pryor are kind of feeling similar. And then you get this kind of chill, you know, like the fountain scene at the end of Ocean's Eleven, like epilogue. There are they're talking about fountains in the epilogue. Actually, that's funny. Good job, me. Um, uh, where it's just kind of like, okay, I can feel the thing winding down. I'm gonna go home and think about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it was. It's it's a biggin. I I'm kind sure of. Is. I'm kind of fascinated by just the uh like the bracketing of the uh, you know the earthquake in 1906 and then the end of the the end of the second play is like the Soviet Union is falling anything is possible now like the world is changing um and prior I think at that point is a few years into like the epilogue jumps a few years and so he is living with his disease it is not the initial death sentence that it was um and like that in and of itself kind of represents hope for a future um not a clean one but still um Mm -hmm. so yeah i don't know it's an important play Mm -hmm. 
it's it's the character I was struck by and this is what carried me through given how long it is for a play um, I was struck by how unique and specific the characters felt despite it being this kind of sprawling thing that feels like it might uh, traffic in archetypes to like get things mm-hmm. done mm-hmm. it would be very easy to do that uh, Kushner is better than that so and you know I'm reading it where a lot of I don't know Andrew feels like a lot of Reagan era stuff is strangely relevant these days that's weird that's because they have that saying about how history doesn't repeat itself yeah they what who got they rid of that thing about, saying they have that saying about how history happens once and then we learn its lessons and move on Right, we all were saying this. Yeah, so I don't know why like old stuff seems like current stuff. You know, hmm. Why does waste of time it is to have to keep repeating (laughs) history over and over again? Like, just seriously, we're having a lot of fun here. But what if we could could just internalize things and move on? (laughs) What if we could just progress? That would be nice. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's Angels in America, Andrew. Yeah. A, cool. a, a gay fantasia on national themes. Mm-hmm. Mickey Mouse not in this play because mm, that that would have been. I mean, Roy Mickey including Mouse a fictional asterisk? version of of Roy Cohn is risky enough, but putting Mickey Mouse in it. <laughs> One day that guy's gonna be in the public domain, though. It's the days are coming. Yeah, I can't and wait. I. We, you and I should resolve personally to do some stuff with Mickey Mouse. I will commit to this now on air. We will do stuff with Mickey Mouse as soon Mickey as it Mouse is legal. As Roy Cohn in <laughs> Angels in America. Where's my Mickey Mouse? Anyway, thanks for letting me tell you about this play, Andrew. Thanks for telling me about it. Um, if folks want to email us about any. Uh, memories they have of seeing this play i would love to hear them send them to overduepod at gmail.com uh you can reach out to us on facebook and twitter at overduepod thanks to hani sam uh kirsty holly crystal and many more for reaching out to us in the past week uh our theme song was composed by nick larangis andrew folks want to know more about the show where do they go OverduePodcast.com is our internet website up there we have links to the books that we have read and the ones that we are going to read for the coming month you click those links, you get taken to a bookshop.org page, buy the books there. You get the book, we get a cut, and your local independent bookseller gets a sale. It's win-win-win for everybody. Yeah. Uh, Patreon.com slash pod is our Patreon page. You can support us more directly there. Helps pay for hosting and for books and for equipment and for, well, like daycare and other life costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in exchange, you get early access to bonus episodes, including our current long read project, which is Goosebumps, where we're building a scary bridge to spooked over by reading a book in our science classic Goosebumps series once per month. Yep. And then I guess sometime in 2020, what, 2023, we're going to be back with more Stop Homer Time because Emily Wilson's Iliad is coming out. It's coming back. We got to build a bridge to Homer Time, it. but we... Yeah. <laughs> It's, I'm going to try not to do a disservice to whatever we long read in between Goosebumps. I'm, sh- I'm sure it'll be great. It will be great. It is, I'm sure it'll be great. Uh, um, next week, yeah. I am reading... Do you remember? Something. You are reading The Maltese Falcon by Dashiell I sure, Hammett. I sure am. I knew. Um, I just wanted to make sure you knew. It was our patron's choice for July. Again, patreon.com. You want to vote on those. But also, Andrew... Uh, we 
as of this airing, we will have recently recorded our bonus episode on Killing Time, mm-hmm. a Star Trek novel. Mm-hmm. So that'll be up at I, some I point. I think it's going to go really great. I'm We're excited. excited to talk about mm-hmm. it. Um, all right, Andrew, that's it. I'm out of here. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to us. And until we come at you next week, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.